Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast, a weekend drop. I am your host, Bob Schmidt, lifelong Cavs fan. And as a very invested fan, today I wanted to hurl myself down the stairs to my basement studio, which is where I'm sitting right now at uh, 10.53 at night. The Fear the Fro family is in town. I've not seen Mama Fear the Fro in almost a year. Which speaks to what a piece of shit son I am, first and foremost. Uh, But secondly, it speaks to the level of commitment that I'm showing you that I shuffled her off to bed like a mid-70s woman that she is. And I said, this is for you. When in reality, I needed to come down here and talk to complete strangers about how crippled I am emotionally from a loss in only the second game of the regular season. Now, this won't all just be laying in a puddle of our own piss. There will be some positive talk at the end because prior to this episode, prior to what transpired this evening, I recorded an interview with a lovely gentleman named Alex Golden. He is the host of the Setting the Pace podcast, a Pacers podcast. Have to get it in there because we have a quick turnaround tomorrow and hopefully Donovan Mitchell will rip off his fourth consecutive 40-point effort in a regular season home game. The one that got that going initially was against the Pacers back on April 2nd of last year. So let's hit the open, and then I'll come back, unless I swallow this bottle of pills first. Welcome to Fear the Fro. Shot blocked by Mobley. Holy Mobley. Donovan Mitchell is 8 for 8 from downtown. Darius Garland hit it from Euclid. Lob Allen. Pow. A Cleveland Cavalier podcast. What do we need to add? What do we need to give the coach? The game has come down to space and opportunity. We address that. Hosted by the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Yeah, his name is Bob Schmidt. Bob, Bob Schmidt. Schmidt. Spectacular talent. That guy is a legend. Got at the buzzer! Welcome back to the show. Let's, uh, let's not mince words. This game was in the bag. This was a win, and not just a win, but a historic effort from Donovan Mitchell. Third consecutive 40-point regular season performance, a streak which began April 2nd in Indiana. Hopefully, we'll continue October 28th in Cleveland. But tonight, the game was done. The fourth quarter was magical. The first 10 minutes of the fourth quarter, anyway, was magical. We came into the quarter trailing by four points. But the third quarter was good. At one point, we were down 15. So four points seemed doable, especially at home. And we opened the quarter with back-to-back triples from Mr. Three-Pointer, Mr. Game One Explosion, Max Struess, who finally started to impose his will on this game. Then Donovan Mitchell using leverage, using his power, putting his body on people, slicing through the lane to the point where they're sending two, three defenders on him. And Evan Mobley ate that shit up on the glass, gets his 15th rebound, cleaning up a Donovan Mitchell miss to give us that nine point cushion. But shit fell apart at that point. And I don't know what the odds are on a nine point lead with a minute and 56 seconds left. I don't know who loses that, but uh, add us to the list because from there we made an unforgivable defensive lapse. Lou Dort, who had a hell of a game, 25 points for Dort, and he finished amongst the trees. A hell of a game from him, hyper-efficient. This is no slander towards Dort, but Dort had Mitchell on him, and he was dribbling the ball towards the right corner. No screen, just one-on-one. He was not blowing past Mitchell. Probably wanted to, but he hadn't even turned the corner on him yet. And for reasons I will probably never understand, Levert abandoned Shea Gilgis-Alexander to help cut off the baseline. 
It definitely was a meaningless rotation that accomplished nothing except to abandon the single most important player on the Thunder not to abandon. Not only did Shea get a wide-open three-pointer, but it came from the very spot where Donovan Mitchell buried the Nets last game. We couldn't even go one game with positive memories of the right elbow three until the Thunder stole that from us. In a way, I kind of feel like this was karma for me spending the first, whatever, eight or ten minutes of the podcast on Wednesday talking about officiating. This is what happens. Instead, the basketball god said, well, you know what? You enjoy that spot so much. How do you like it when you're on the other side? I imagine it's similar to how my my wife got the house cleaned because my parents were coming and because she still cares about making a good impression on them, where I gave up on that decades ago. But so she got the house cleaned and everything was spotless, and then I pissed on the seat. Now, I didn't do it on purpose, but my point is, within seconds, the toilet, with with no ring in it, it was a spot that we were collectively celebrating just moments before, and then our pristine toilet was soiled by one reckless rotation of my penis before I had removed all the remnants. This is really a very clumsy comparison, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Don't take a spot on the court, which brought me so much joy. And then just one game later, you snatch it away from me. But we've given up one three-pointer. No biggie. We still got a six-point lead. It's a minute and a half left. Two possessions. We can do this thing. And Evan Mobley gets the ball near the foul line, drives in, and they call a foul on Holmgren. But the instant replay from the coach's challenge would show And this is true. He did not foul Evan. It was a clean block. His seventh block of the game. This man sent everyone packing multiple times on Levert, multiple times on Mobley. He got Isaac Okoro. He even got Max Struess on a corner three-point attempt. I thought Evan played pretty well in terms of his rebounding tonight. I thought his fourth quarter was big, but certainly it was frustrating seeing him not be able to impose himself physically on a man who... I don't even know if Chet Holmgren weighs more than me, and I am six feet tall. You saw what I saw out there. It was a man who looks like a created character on NBA 2K. The next time down the floor after this instant replay is ruled in favor of the Thunder, we have Jalen Williams knock down a three after Evan Mobley tried to close off a driving lane for Isaiah Joe. Isaiah Joe had a coro on his hip. Now, Mobley, for whatever reason, made the decision to take a step in to try to close off that lane. And I don't think that was a terrible choice, but the result there was terrible. Of all the three-pointers in that back-to-back-to-back triple sequence, the second one was the most forgivable. Jalen Williams hit that jump shot from the same spot that Shea just had hit a three-pointer. And now we're barely clinging onto a three-point lead. We take a timeout. Okay, let's gather the troops. Let's collect ourselves. But the play that we ran, I'm trying to just not react based on the result. I'm trying to give JB the benefit of the doubt here. I'm trying to give Evan the benefit of the doubt here. But they threw the ball into Evan about 15 to 18 feet out on the right side, somewhere between the foul line and the baseline. So a little space, but certainly not tons of space to operate in terms of running off-ball actions that would run down the lane. And the off-ball action that they set up was for Max Struess to just turn towards the lane and run down the right side of it. And Evan tossed him the ball and he put up what can only generously be described as a full speed off balance, right-handed heave that he was trying to 
bank in off the backboard over a longer Jalen Williams who was right in his hip pocket, stride for stride. Of course he missed it, but to make matters worse, he tumbled to the floor and took himself out of the play. I encourage you to go back and watch the last two minutes and then kill yourself probably. But I encourage you to go back and watch the play that I'm describing right now. Because the thing about Donovan Mitchell there was, I think the play could have possibly worked if Donovan Mitchell had set a screen on Jalen Williams at the three-point circle so that Max could turn the corner without a guy with him, stride for stride. There was no real active effort to do that. I don't know if it ran the way they intended it to, but if that was the play they meant to execute, it's not what I would have chosen. And sadly, the end result is that it fucked us because as they headed back the other way, Jalen Williams had the ball. He tossed it back to Chet Holmgren and Evan Mobley was in no man's land because it was a five on four. He couldn't close out to Chet Holmgren at the top of the three point circle because had he, Jalen Williams was alone underneath the rim so he tried to hedge his bet and play somewhere between the two and dare Chet to try to throw it over top of him but Chet wisely pulled up and knocked down the three and with less than a minute of time the Thunder closed a nine-point deficit to a tie game and to me that was the sequence right there now we still obviously had chances to win but after a sloppy Donovan Mitchell turnover after a Coro fouled all of a sudden, we found ourselves trailing by four with 12 seconds left. It was it would take a miracle. And Mitchell did his best to try to achieve that miracle. He knocked down a drifting three-pointer, which got us within one, allowed us to get back into the fouling game. But in the end, as the final seconds ticked away, Donovan Mitchell lost the ball to Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who racked up his fifth steal and got the victory and muted what would have been one of those resume games from Donovan Mitchell. And I was obviously more concerned with the Cavaliers getting the overall win here, but to put forth that kind of fourth quarter effort and not be able to reap the reward with a victory is just brutal, especially knowing we've got to roll into a back-to-back tomorrow. Now, there is a moment we have to discuss regarding Isaac Okoro because I thought for the second night he played a very solid game, but he had an unfortunate sequence of events befall him in the second half of this basketball game. And that was, there was a play where he was going up for a rebound. He took an elbow to the face and he sprawled to the floor and he stayed down. It was a hard elbow, one that bloodied him. And while he was lying on the floor with his hands over his head, the ball was still live. So Chet Holmgren gathers it starts to drive down the lane, leaps in the air, and comes down right on the face of an Isaac Okoro who sprawled out in front of the rim. They called a foul on Isaac Okoro, who was face down on the floor with his head covered because his face fouled the sole of Chet Holmgren's shoe. This man could not catch a break. And then later, after returning to the game, he rips the ball away from one of the Thunder players and then gets raked across the arms, and they don't call a foul. Now, he gathered it anyway, and this is my frustration. Obviously, Okoro got fouled in that instance, and it went uncalled, but it didn't change anything because he still was able to gather the loose ball. So that's why it frustrates me that JB got a technical there. And Max Struess as well, you heard me in game one. I went at the officials for what I thought were some very soft calls, but for Max Struess to want a foul on that play where Jalen Williams barely had his hand on his back as if he pushed off of him. He didn't. You fucked up. You lost the ball off yourself out of bounds. And then pride or whatever the reason was, you decided to yell towards the ref's direction and they teed you up. And that burnt us again. And especially with the benefit of knowing how close the final score was, those were stupid times 
to accumulate technical fouls. The time to get the technical foul is when Isaac Okoro gets a foul with his face, not when he successfully steals the ball but gets fouled in the process and they don't call it. The end result was still the same. And for Struess, it just wasn't Struess's night outside of those back-to-back triples to start the fourth. It wasn't his best shooting performance. But, hey, at least it's not George Nyang. Okay, 0 for 5, that means he started out 0 for 8 on the season. However, if George Nyang really is like clockwork in hitting 40% from outside the arc, that means if he's going to begin the season with eight consecutive misses from beyond the arc, that he's got a hell of a heater in store for him at some point. And let's not forget, Okoro did a similar thing last season, and then he got much better as the season progressed. But he dug himself such a three-point percentage hole that it took him most of the season to battle out of that. Not a good night for George Yang, obviously, but Donovan Mitchell gave us a fantastic individual performance that sadly was wasted by some horrific late game execution. Now, I think there were positives from a lot of the role guys. It was good to see Dean back out there. It was good to see him knock down a couple of triples. I thought he hustled. I thought he contested shots fairly well. Okoro, more of the same. His stat line wasn't as loud as last night, but can we acknowledge that he is making an impactful effort on the glass in the absence of Jared Allen. Led the team in offensive rebounds with four tonight and finished with a respectable 10-7. and And that includes the time in which he had to leave the floor to go back and get his face checked out because he got stomped by that gangly fuck Holmgren. So credit to the Thunder. I've called Shea a grifter many times. The first two games of the season... There hasn't been grifting on his part. He was fantastic. 34 and 11, five steals tonight, four assists, an incredibly efficient effort from him. I respect the game of Lou Dort tonight, and I thought you got big moments. Chet Holmgren, I don't think the seven blocks he accumulated were as impactful as you would think they were if in a box score you saw seven blocks, but give the man his due. Despite his weight limitations, he put everybody on his list tonight. Lavert, Osman, Struess, Mobley. He got them all. And he's going to be legitimately great for that team as we move along in the season. They didn't even need Josh Giddy to show up. An incredibly quiet night from him and Isaiah Joe. Good effort by the Thunder. Congratulations to them. Just tip your cap. A team that didn't get rattled and they managed to dig their way out of a huge hole that they dug in the fourth quarter. So now let's, let's move this thing forward. I don't want to dwell on a loss. I want to focus on what lies ahead of us. And fortunately, before this game, I was joined by a Pacers expert, a man with a podcast of his own, setting the pace. And let's hit that interview. So joining me on the podcast is the host, one half of the Setting the Pace podcast and Indiana Pacers podcast, Alex Golden. Bob, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, love the podcast name, Fear the Fro. I think the, the graphic's great too, so... Uh, kudos to you for that. And this Cleveland team is a, a really good team. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited about what we saw, especially in game one. I imagine the same could be said for your Indiana Pacers, who scored a ridiculous mm-hmm. amount of points. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Washington, so I'm trying not to <laughs> get my expectations too high because this is by far the worst team probably in the league right now. So uh, they're an interesting team, but yeah, their defense was pretty abysmal. Was it unexpected to you what transpired on the other end of the floor? 
No, not really. I think last year we saw all season long how the Pacers had a good offensive team, but their defense was, I think, 26 in the league last year. So it it continues to be a problem for them, and they're going to have to work on that. They did bring in Bruce Brown to kind of help shoulder the load of the defense. That first quarter was just terrible. 39 points was shocking to me. They were able to keep the Wizards, I think Carlisle and Halliburton mentioned this as well, under 30 points in each of the final three quarters, which was the goal. But I still feel like if you're allowing teams to score 30 points a quarter, that that still seems like a lot of points. 120 points does not sound like good defense. So maybe it is a stepping stone for the Pacers. But, yeah, I think overall the, the defense for the Pacers was bad. But the offense, that did not surprise me one bit because we know this team can get hot and they have a lot of shooters and guys that really like to share the basketball. Over the course of the summer, your team's exceptionally young. Uh, added a couple guys last year, had two more first-round picks this year. Added Bruce Brown, added Obi Toppin, a trend that seems to be kind of prevalent with your team in terms of acquiring guys still on their rookie deal, giving them a much bigger role than they had in their previous environment. Where did the fan base kind of sit in terms of short-term expectations versus, you know, balancing the fact that their team is so young and that there's a lot of guys kind of still finding what their exact role is going to be? Yeah, I think everybody last year kind of came into the season thinking, okay, this is going to be a team that's not very good. They're in a rebuild, but we have Tyrese Halliburton. We drafted Ben Matherin. Let's see what these two can do and then build from there. Then they exceeded expectations by winning 35 games last year, getting the seventh overall pick in the draft before trading it to Washington to get the eighth pick. This season, I think because they played so well during that stretch and they were 23 and 18 at the halfway point last season, all the fans were like, if Tyrese doesn't get hurt, we're a playoff team. So expectations were kind of like, okay, they're pretty high. They got to go out here and make a, a win now move. And they signed Bruce Brown on the opening day of free agency. Then they trade for Obi Toppin to kind of solidify that starting five. And I think fans have now gone from last offseason to being more patient and expecting a, a slow rebuild to, okay, we are a playoff team now that can win 40 to 45 games. So it's been a quick turnaround. Kevin Pritchard said that he felt like there was almost two seasons in last year's uh, season because of how much they developed and increasing their win total from 25 to 35 in one year. So, yeah, I think that at this point right now, I think they were pretty happy with the offseason moves fans were because it felt like they were heading in a direction that would be towards winning and not toward, hey, let's keep developing and keep going towards a, a longer term route like we've seen other franchises do and it work out well for them. I think this fan base does not have the patience for that. Bruce Brown kind of caught me off guard in the sense that it was a fairly substantial contract, but a short deal like that with a team option on the second year, it kind of evokes those memories of what you saw, you know, the Lakers do with like a KCP. Is he a stopgap? Yeah, I think it's really kind of hard to tell just because I think this contract they gave him for this two years, 44 million, something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers of the contract. Maybe it was two for 45 was the deal. And I think this year he's making more money in this year's salary than he's made his entire career earnings. So the Pacers had this salary cap to go out and uh, get somebody and they had to reach the salary floor. So going after Bruce Brown and kind of getting a, a one-term one-year deal done was, was kind of the big thing here with a team option on that second year, because it gives the Pacers a lot of flexibility. And, and personally, I think it makes him extremely tradable. However, if they're trying to win and he's trying to be a part of this culture and be a starter, then I don't necessarily think that's going to happen. Uh, people think Bruce is probably a little bit older than he actually is. He's only 26 years old, so he does fit this core. I think there's potential there with Bruce Brown. He does fit what this team needs. And I think, like you said, the the signing was a little bit puzzling just because Andrew Nimhard, Ben Matherin were on the, on the roster as well, and they were playing minutes together towards the end of the season last year with Tyrese at the one. Uh, Andrew and Ben were playing the two and the three. 
And then you also had Buddy Hield on the roster, who Buddy Hield had a great season last year with the Pacers, and uh, he still is on the roster now. So just a lot of guard overlap. And and someone that the Cavaliers ended up getting was Max Strus. He was heavily rumored to Indiana as well, and I think that there was some uh, legs to that. But I think the Pacers decided to go with a more defensive-minded guy in Bruce Brown. The, the price was a little bit over the top, but I think – Almost any team would have offered him their full mid-level exception, so the Pacers had the extra money to give it to him. It, it made it kind of a slam-dunk deal for him and, and for Tyrese recruiting him. But, yeah, I, I like the fit, and I think that he does make sense here long-term, especially if he plays like he did last night. Now, you mentioned last year Nemhard and Matherin had big-minute roles, and they've kind of had somebody added into the rotation in front of them. Buddy Heald has had a similar thing. As you guys drafted Ben Shepard, who does a lot of the same things as he does, he seems to have a lot of overlap. Is mm. it just sort of a known secret that Buddy will be shopped this year? Yeah, I think it's kind of a, I think it's kind of an open secret, right? They did offer him an extension, and I know that it was a decent extension, but it, it wasn't one that Buddy was excited about. Obviously, the the deal didn't get done, and they didn't have any further talks after that. So, Buddy Hill fits in really well with Tyrese. They have great chemistry together. Buddy fits in perfectly with Rick Carlisle's offensive uh, style of play. And Carlisle has actually allowed Buddy to be more of a playmaker than he has been allowed to be in other places. And I think even last night he had five assists. There was one game in the preseason he had nine uh, nine assists as well. And so Buddy's kind of showing he can be more of a playmaker and not just the guy that puts up three-point shots. So I do think that there was some overlap there, but you have to realize Ben Shepard, 26 overall pick, Rick Carlisle said he's got a little buddy in him. With Buddy being an expiring, it does have uh, some nice value there to have a guy that could replace him if they are very similar in style of play. But you got to look long-term. I think that Ben Shepard was high on the Pacers' radar. And if you watch him play, you can kind of tell like he is a he's a, he's a microwave type of player. He can really get going. He's a runner. So, I, yeah. I was amazed at just watching the guy. It's just constant movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what Rick was referring to when he called him Buddy. He said he'll wear opponents out. That's just who he is. So I think that he does overlap there a little bit. But for some reason, if Buddy Hill is traded, right, or if he does leave him free agency, you do have that insurance right there to have a guy that's on a rookie deal and under team control for a lot longer, you know, right there in your back pocket. And I think that there's probably more defensive potential and upside with a Ben Shepard compared to a Buddy Hill. Now, speaking of uh, defensive upside and potential, the other pick in your first round was Jairus Walker, who I watched your first preseason game, and I immediately got excited because he knocked yeah. down like four three-pointers, all from the same exact spot on the floor. And it was a little more muted for the rest of the preseason. And then in this first game, uh, I noticed he, I mean, he didn't really find his way into the big man rotation. I'm curious how you came away feeling after preseason in terms of defensive phenom type potential with capable, you know, spacing ability. How did you feel after preseason with where he is now and where you think he'll be, you know, within a year or two here? Yeah, he's a work in progress. I think there's a lot of things to like about him. He has a great feel for the game. Defensively, that seven foot two wingspan is very impactful. Offensively, he's been playing really at like has almost been kind of rushed. And I think Miles Turner talked about that in one of the post-game interviews. He said he's just playing really fast right now, and the game needs to slow down for him a little bit. He's really raw right now. And he's got a lot of potential. Like he played point guard a little bit for IMG. Uh, he's kind of the point forward last year for Houston. He doesn't have to have a big scoring role. The outside shooting to me is very, uh, it's, a, it's a work in progress. I guess you could say it's one of those things where it's like, it's, it's streaky. It's inconsistent. And I would, I would say the best way to describe him is random. He's just kind of 
random how he plays and the Pacers like playing a random style of offense, but you know, Jairus Walker, I've talked about this a few times on our podcast, but it was like the last preseason game. He made a bucket. I think he ended up going two of three from the field that game against the Cavs. Uh, but he pulled up and, and took a mid-range jumper like 20 feet uh, out with like four seconds into the shot clock. And it's like, why, why are you taking that for? Like Rick Carlisle doesn't even like mid-range jump shots, let alone four seconds into the shot clock when you're just pulling up and shooting it. So he's a, he's really going to be good and impactful on the defensive side of things and rebounding when he finally does crack the rotation. But Rick Carlisle has already said that it won't be soon. It's going to be a little while before he gets in there. And I think you can tell why he's just a young player that needs some development. One of the tough decisions that Carlisle had to make was in adding Bruce Brown, it kind of feels like it kicked Nemhard down to the second unit, which then kicked TJ McConnell down to a sort of a third unit point guard. And it's a guy who clearly has far more talent uh, than that position. Is he more likely to be moved than a Buddy Heald, being that he's not actually playing a significant role? Yeah, I think he's probably an easier contract to move as well because I think he's making around $9 million this year, and then he has a partial guarantee on his next deal uh, for the following season. So it's tough. I think the Pacers want to do right by T.J. McConnell. He's the second longest tenured Pacer right now. He's been a soldier for this team, and when he was brought in here, he was a third intriguing point guard. Aaron Holiday was drafted that same draft, and he was kind of put in position to be the backup point guard. And then TJ McConnell just outplayed him. And you can see why TJ McConnell is a really good basketball player. I just think Andrew Nimhard is that much better. TJ to me feels like a guy that will more than likely be on the move only because I think the team wants to do right by him and get him to a spot where he can get some minutes and maybe help with a team like a playoff team and have a significant role because you don't want to have a situation where they kind of have one now with a Daniel Tice, a guy that is just too good to not be playing. But at the same time, there's just players ahead of them that fit better with the style they want to play. I mean, honestly, looking at your roster, it feels like everybody in your front court has to be able to shoot threes at this point. <laughs> I mean, a decision has to be made on Obi over the course of the year, too, because we're both as fan bases, us with Okoro and you with Toppin, in these scenarios where we have these guys going into their contract years, essentially, hoping for success, but knowing that if you know, you guys make a playoff run if he plays a big role, if he plays as well as you would hope. Uh, I'm curious where you see his price tag falling. Yeah, that's a great question, man. I, I honestly don't have a great answer for you because it's hard for me to even think about where Obi Toppin's one year of really good play would get him. I would I would guess around maybe $16 million a year if he's a starting power forward. I, I could see where they're trying to get him in like the 16 to $18 million range if he really pops, but people were kind of surprised that he didn't get an extension with the Pacers. And I'm like, well, there's no reason why he would. He hasn't played a game for him yet in the regular season. They want to see if this fits or not. They obviously drafted Jairus Walker at the power forward position. So if they think that Jairus somehow takes this massive leap this year, then maybe Obi Toppin getting 16 to 18 is a little bit of an overpay for him. So he's going to be a beneficiary of Tyrese Halliburton. And I think that's one thing that can't be understated is just like how much better Tyrese makes everybody around him. So when I when I look at an Obi Top and I think to myself, okay, this guy has a great opportunity. He's been wanting to be in Indiana for the last couple of years. I think Rick Carlisle said that uh, you know, his agent was like reaching out to them for like a year trying to get him to Indiana. The fact that he wanted to be in Indiana, you guys are probably aware of this too, just being a smaller market. It's it's tough to lure names here, but when you finally have guys that fit your culture, it, it's important to keep those guys around. And especially if you can get him on a bargain deal. That's why I think Aaron Neesmith, that deal of three for 33 was so impactful because he really just embraced the role of being whatever they ask him to be. 
and kind of being a Swiss Army knife. And that's why I was a little bit surprised that, you know, you look at a guy like Cole Anthony getting three for 39 with Orlando. I'm like, okay, if you want to call Aaron Neesmith an overpay, then what is that? Like, I like Cole Anthony, but like, he's a defensive liability where Neesmith can guard one through four and shoot the ball well and put the ball on the floor a little more. And you guys saw the dunk on Jared Allen. So it's, uh, he's got that in him. Plus, it's a hedge against whatever may happen next summer where it's it's not the worst thing in the world for him to be logging heavy minutes. But if somebody does come in who assumes that role, he's a luxury and he's still at a price point that it's totally reasonable. So the Vegas over-under for you guys uh, was around like 35 and a half. They had you clumped in sort of that range with like the Magic, the Bulls, the Raptors, the Nets, all kind of within like one or two games of one another. I'm curious, do you have expectations as far as, you know, what's their ceiling to you? What's their realistic ceiling as far as how far they could climb seed-wise? I would I would say that I feel like for me, and I said this a while ago, I think our ceiling is probably the sixth seed. I think I had them around the eight to nine uh, range for what I realistically think they're going to fall into. I think around 40 to 42 wins, 43 maybe at the most, feels about right. But I, I definitely feel like this is a team that's definitely going to smash the over from what Vegas's odds are at. And I just think Tyrese Halliburton is so good. You're talking about a guy that was an all-star last year, a guy that could become All-NBA this year if he continues on that trajectory of just evolving as a player. But I think if they stay healthy, I'm in that probably 41, 42 games. What would make you feel satisfied at the end of the season? What's the bare threshold where you walk into the summer and you say, this was a successful season, both from a team standpoint and whatever individual progression you want to see? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, yeah, like you want them to get into the play-in if they can't make it as a top six seed. But at that point, I I would rather them win the play-in and actually get a playoff series so they can kind of get that experience of what it's like having these really fun battles because none of these players really besides Miles Turner and now Bruce Brown obviously won the championship, but like a lot of these guys don't have that deep playoff experience. I mean, Aaron Neesmith was on Boston's roster, but he wasn't really getting in the game. Obi Toppin was with New York, so he's got a little bit, but the Tyrese has been Mather and Andrew Nimhard. They've never experienced it. Buddy Hill has never been in the playoffs, so how it's, would they respond? It's funny you bring that up because yeah. that's one of my favorite yeah. random trivia facts yeah. is that Buddy Hill is the longest tenured player in the NBA to not play in a playoff game Oh man! by over 200 games. Like the next that closest active player. He has played 549 games in the NBA, and that is sixth all time for the longest tenure without playing a playoff game. The next closest guy that's an active NBA player is Lowry Markinen, who's just shy of 350 games. So nobody's even oh, close to catching Buddy. So if you guys go on some storied run in the first half, and then you dump him at the trade deadline... You better do it to a contender because that would just be so wrong <laughs> to treat Buddy that way. <laughs> oh, man, that would be so rough if they trade him to a team that didn't make the playoffs to uh, keep that streak going. No, it, It's just interesting because I just think that overall they need playoff experience. Aaron Neesmith came on our podcast last year and talked about, I want us to make the play-in just so these guys can get some kind of understanding of what like that elimination game feels like, what that pressure feels like, and how much more intense it is versus the regular season and competing in a game like a regular season game it's just totally different and i think these guys understand that to a degree but i feel like it's playoffs or or bust for me in terms of success but if ben matherin can really evolve into a two-way guy that he wants to become and shows that he can be more of a a facilitator a guy that can be a better defender then i think that's pretty successful too knowing that you have found that running mate with tyrese halliburton I immediately hated how good he was at getting to the line right out of the gate. 
Now, we're a full two years removed from when you guys traded us Karis LeVert for Ricky Rubio. Do you feel that now you've drafted Nemhard and Ben Shepard that both sides won? I think for Pacer fans now, the fact that they've got Andrew Nemhard, who has looked so good in his short stint here, and then the promising hope of Ben Shepard, it, it's a win-win trade. I think that you know the, the Cavs missing the play-in was just a, a knife in the heart. <laughs> well, the year they made that deal, because there was like a, a very, very small chance that you guys would not make the, the playoffs that year from how well you played and then the fall and the two playing oh, games. We collapsed just, hard. We saved ourselves. We saved that you, pick for another year. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? It worked out better for you guys because yeah. you were able to use that. That pick became a Baji and again. that became Donovan Mitchell. So yeah, I guess yeah. in the end it worked out. Yeah. But that was that was the only silver lining and what was otherwise a late season swoon. They should have won that series. Uh, the, who, was, who was again? The Hawks? The, the, Hawks, one, that, yeah. the one that should have won? Yeah. You get the Cavs on a back-to-back. Your schedule early isn't exactly easy. You get the Cavs twice in short order. You get the Celtics. You have the Sixers early in the season. Expectations, if you had to make a prediction. I think it's probably 50-50 either way. If the Pacers give them their best punch, it could be really interesting. But I thought Evan Mobley was really good in the preseason game. I would say Cleveland's probably a top three, top four team in the Eastern Conference. So if the Pacers win this, I think it would be an upset. I would probably lean Cleveland winning this game since it's going to be home opening weekend. There's a lot of excitement around this team and what they could become. The Pacers are a defensive liability right now with what they've showcased. I mean, you give up 120 points to Washington. Uh, Danilo Gallinari at the five absolutely destroyed the Pacers. And I think that there's ways that – Cleveland just has much better talent all around and, and Max Drews, George and Yang and Karis Lever. Like there's just a lot of talent on this Cavs team. And I think if the Pacers won, I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's going to be close and the Cavs probably pull away one by like seven. Well, I like that prediction. I hope that it pans <laughs> out. Uh, yeah. I wanted to thank you, man, for coming on the podcast and taking time uh, to do it. And for everybody who hasn't checked out the podcast yet, uh, setting the pace, you guys just did a rebrand as well. Uh, Alex Golden, thank you for taking the time to join me. Absolutely, Bob. Thank you so much. So there you go. There's Alex Golden. And uh, let's put the suffering of the Oklahoma City game behind us and focus on what's ahead. And hopefully we head into this Knicks matchup 2-1 and one, on the way to 4-1. and one. Fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Now I'm going to bed. Thank you for joining me. Please leave a rating, leave a review, and pee all over those seats, boys. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.